Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Much of the political and economic discussion over the past few years has focused on the gap between the top 1% and everyone else, and how the ultra-rich are hoarding income and wealth, while incomes for all the rest are stagnating. But is this the most important gap in American society? Brookings Senior Fellow Richard Reeves, in his new book, Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It, says the more important and widening gap is between the upper middle class, or those whose incomes are in the top 20%, and everyone else. In this episode, my colleague Bill Finan talks with Reeves about his ideas and recommendations in the book, just published by the Brookings Institution Press. Also in this episode, meet Camille Busset, a new senior fellow at Brookings and director of the Race, Place, and Economic Mobility Initiative. Bill, over to you. Richard, good to see you again. Thank you. I wanted to begin by asking you to read a short piece. It's the conclusion to the introduction to your new book, Dream Hoarders. Sure, I'd be happy to. As he put the final touches to a book, the historian James Truslow Adams was pleased with his idea for the title, The American Dream. But his publishers told him not to be silly. Americans were a practical people. They would never buy a book about a dream. So it was published in 1931 as The Epic of America. But his phrase nonetheless jumped off the page and into common use. The American dream, according to Adams, is a dream of being able to grow to the fullest development as man and woman, unhampered by the barriers which had slowly been erected in older civilizations for the benefit of classes rather than for the simple human being. The American dream is not about super wealth or celebrity. The American dream is of a decent home in a pleasant neighborhood, good schools for our kids, steadily rising income, and enough money put aside for an enjoyable retirement. It's about sustaining a strong family and seeing your children off to a good college. It's become a staple of politicians to declare the American dream dying or dead. But it is not dead. It is alive and well. But it is being hoarded by those of us in the upper middle class. The question is, will we share it? I asked you to read that not only because of the fact that the editor made one of the most epic fails on a title ever for his book, but also because (laughs) it it captures the essential tension in your book. The American dream is only available to a certain segment of American society, the top 20 percent, what you call the upper middle class. How would you define that segment, that upper middle class? There's long debates, of course, about how to define class, both in Mm. the country I come from, the UK, and my new home, the US. And sociologists and economists have long debates about it. I essentially use an economic definition. So I take the broadly the top 20%, top quintile of the income distribution. But now that's roughly those households with incomes above about 120,000 a year in today's terms. And the average income of that group is about $200,000 a year. And it does look as if that's the group that have been separating away. You can also define in terms of education, you can do self-definition. So actually, if you ask Americans to define themselves, first thing that happens is they're all middle class, Mm. uh, 90% are middle class. But then within that middle class, broad categorization. One in seven, 15, 16% or so, depending on the year, will describe themselves as upper middle class. And so both in terms of economics and self-definition as well as education, that feels like about the right definition. And when you mentioned $150,000, I think you say in the book the median household income in the United States is 54000 something. That's right. So, And those people would define themselves too as middle class, right? That, that... Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, it's difficult writing a book about 
class in a country where everyone starts by defining themselves as middle class. And so it is the distinctions within that group that start to really matter. And so, and it's also one of the reasons why the self-definitions only get us so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because almost no one, you know, 1% describe themselves as upper class. Or very few people describe themselves as rich. And so on. So both in terms of definition and history, America is a middle class nation. So it's this group at the top, this top slice, the, the favoured fifth, if you like, at the top, where who really seem to be pulling away from everybody else. And they, and I should say we and maybe many of the listeners to this podcast are the ones who've been doing pretty well for the last 20 years and not just well economically but occupationally geographically in terms of family life and so on you talk about the joy of leaving britain's class system for america's classless system and talking about becoming an american citizen which was just a few years ago Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but that snippet from your book that you read also captures a central idea in your book that we are in america class-based society even though we think we aren't Money, as you mentioned, education, wealth, occupation, you say tightly cluster together to create a certain class, in this case, the upper middle class, the top 20%. And in the book, you call this the great division, the great divide, the top 20% and the rest, 80%. You also say that the driver of this economic separation can be traced to two sources, wages and wives. What did you mean by that? In terms of the economic separation of that group at the top, trying to get at the kind of factors that underlie it, the two that that we identified, wages first, is that there's been a big growth in earnings inequality. And so in the labour market, people are actually in the workplace, you've seen that there's really quite a significant increase in the gap between the highest paid and everybody else. And so that's factor one, if you like. Mm -hmm. But then wives, the second one, uh, is what's happening to female employment and relatedly to marriage and family patterns. And so over the last few decades, we've seen women catching up with men educationally. And so there are many more women who are earning more. There's still a gender pay gap, but you are seeing many college graduate women who are now earning pretty well in the labor market. And they tend to be married to college-educated men. And so what happens is you're getting sort of two high incomes or two potentially high incomes coming into one household. And so those two factors together, increased earnings inequality and increased what sociologists very unromantically call assortative mating, Mm -hmm. (laughs) marrying someone like yourself, has actually kind of meant that at a household level, you see this really strong separation. What I thought was interesting is that in the 80s and I guess into the early 90s, we had double income, no kids. But what you point out in Dream Hoarders is double income and kids. You call marriage a child-rearing machine for the knowledge economy. It seems that marriage is a central driver, too, in creating upper-middle-class geography, you point out, educational opportunities and a host of other advantages. Advantage piles on top of advantage, you write. What are some of those advantages? Well, you've mentioned some already, Bill, but there is clearly there's higher earnings mm-hmm. or potential earnings. So even if you take some time out, you know you can go back in at high level. Education, and so we're seeing significant and increased educational inequality between those who do get a college degree or a good college degree and those who don't. You're seeing geographical separation. So while segregation in terms of race has dropped modestly in the U.S., it rather had to, I must say, uh, it has gone down a little bit. Segregation of our neighbourhoods by class, economically speaking, has actually increased. And so our neighbours are slightly more likely to be of a different race to us, but they're actually less likely to be of a different class to us. And that's happening just as much at the top as it is at the bottom. And so you see the sort of physical separate. And then, of course, that means access to good schools. It means that you're able to kind of protect the value of your property and so on. And there's occupational segregation too into sort of certain kinds of professions where you get more flexibility, where you get more job security. And so... Last but not least, which you've referred to, family stability, marriage, which is that there's a big marriage gap in the U.S. And again, it's where the U.S. is unusual in this regard, the extent to which upper middle class Americans marry 
and stay married. So actually divorce rates have dropped at the top in the US. And so you're seeing quite strong marriages, quite strong families among those well-educated uh, folk at the top. And one reason for that is because it's easier to maintain a strong family relationship when you've got those higher earnings coming in and more mm -hmm. economic resources. That's what I mean by compounding, this kind of clustering of advantages. One advantage leads to another. Higher education means higher earnings. Higher earnings means you, are, you know, then you marry somebody else who also has higher earnings. Then you buy a house in a good neighborhood and, and so on and so forth. And then you add in the tax subsidies in the outrageous form of things like mortgage interest deduction. And it starts to look as if Uncle Sam's kind of helping us along the way. He's mm -hmm. helping the upper middle class to hoard the dream rather than actually kind of opening up the American dream. I want to come back to the children for a moment. They are important, you say, because you argue children raised in upper middle class families do well in life. As a result, there's a lot of intergenerational stickiness, as you call it. What are some of the reasons that children of the upper middle class do well in life compared to those in the 80 percent? Worth saying, first of all, that that is where the U.S. stands out internationally is for this stickiness at the top. It's for the perpetuation of the upper middle class. So, you know, it's still something of a shock for me to discover that the upper middle class is more resilient over generations in America than it is in the UK, where I come from. So mm -hmm. for all the watching of The Crown or Downton Abbey and so on, the US class system operates at the top more ruthlessly than the British one that I left behind. So that Ruth extent... Ruthlessly? Well, I think ruthlessly, yeah. yeah. I, I think if you look at the way that institutions work from some of the things we'll get on to talk about, the zoning, college, and so on, I think that actually I wanted the chance to say this, and I don't actually say this in the book because my thinking's developed a bit since then, is that I never thought I would say that I miss British class consciousness. I hate British class consciousness mm -hmm. and that constant calibration of where you are. But one of the things that comes along with class consciousness is a recognition of class division. And so it does at least open up the possible people at least are aware in the UK that they're in a class system. The US in some ways has the worst of both worlds because it has, as I said, a ruthlessly efficient class reproduction machine, but all under the veneer of classless meritocracy. And so actually, that's some ways the worst of all worlds is to have no consciousness of class or at least less consciousness mm -hmm. of class whilst you do have a class machine operating. So the, the US class machine operates much more quietly and the British class machine. But I've come to believe that it operates, if anything, somewhat more ruthlessly. And there's no political attempts to call attention to it either within the American political system at all. That's right. I see at least the, the upper middle class in the UK have the decency to feel a bit guilty about their privilege, whereas the American upper middle class really don't. And so so it's actually one of the things that's really struck me is the, the absence of that of a sort of moral anguish or guilt or any sense of sort of a recognition of privilege. And you see that even today in the sort of fierce way in which the upper middle class defend their tax breaks, almost as if they're entitled to them in some way. And the lack of sort of moral anguish about the decisions that people make to kind of keep zoning out the poor or to hoard certain educational resources or you know, use legacy preferences to get their kids into a better college and so on. These are all practices that would at the very least would cause some moral tremors in upper middle class people in the UK because of our awareness of class. In the US, people do it without a backward glance. Time for a break here to meet a new Brookings expert who is leading our initiative on promoting policies and strategies that unlock barriers to economic opportunity by race and place in America. I'm Camille Busset. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies, and I head up the new Race, Place, and Economic Mobility project here at Brookings. So I grew up in a variety of places, actually, which I think has made me very much who I am. I was born in Los Angeles. 
I grew up actually in New York City, and then towards the end of high school, my family moved to Sacramento, California, where I finished up high school and then went on to UC Berkeley for college. But I think what's probably more important than where I grew up is actually my family background. My family is originally from the Caribbean, and we did spend a lot of time during the summers visiting my relatives in a variety of different places, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Trinidad and Tobago, and some other islands. And part of why I think that's important is that a lot of my relatives really are very low income, and I think it gave me an opportunity to see the differences pretty early. You know, so by the time I was six, seven, eight, I kind of could tell there was a big difference between their standard of living and the standard of living I enjoyed here in the U.S., and I think that's a big part of who I am now. The thing that has inspired me to become a scholar, I'm very interested in social problems and really trying to innovate new solutions to those. My own background is that my parents were pretty highly educated. My dad had a PhD in Spanish language and literature, and my mom was an ABD in economics. And so I grew up in a household that was very engaged intellectually and very curious intellectually, and we were really encouraged to be pretty much the same. And so I think I was just in general kind of a very curious person. But when I got to graduate school, I really, I think, put that into overdrive and really saw that where I flourish and what really motivates me is when there's kind of an unsolved puzzle, whether it be empirical or theoretical or practical, and where I could take a different set of perspectives and apply that to those puzzles in order to solve them. So that, to me, is actually really interesting, and it's one of the reasons I'm here doing this at Brookings. The Race Place and Economic Mobility Initiative is a new initiative, and Brookings has been working in this space a little bit since 2015, but not as an official initiative. So we have scholars like Richard Reeves and our folks in Metro and other places in governance studies that have contributed to some really excellent scholarship already. But what I plan to do with this initiative really is try to focus it on recrafting and updating the iconic American narrative, which I think needs to be very inclusive of who we all are. And in doing that, I think I'm going to bring to bear a lot of different kinds of disciplines, everything from the typical social science disciplines that we're familiar with here at Brookings, to looking at how we can structure a campaign around race and inequality and economic mobility that's not dissimilar to some of the campaigns that have been run recently, like the gay marriage campaign and anti-smoking campaign. So one of the things I'm going to be doing now, obviously I need to set up the program. There's an operational piece of that. But the first thing we're going to be working on now is the demographic profile of young men of color with respect to economic mobility. I think the most critical challenge that we face is the persistence of barriers to social and economic inclusion that perpetuate inequality and that prevent individuals from reaching their potential and their aspirations. And I think that's actually a really serious problem that we have. In my previous work at the World Bank, that took the form of extreme poverty and lack of access to you know, health, education, sanitation, those kinds of things, to the labor market. And in the work that I'm doing here at Brookings, which is much more domestically focused, we have a very significant issue with racial inequality and with the lack of economic mobility more generally. 
I have two recommendations that I think are pretty critical to understanding the work that I'm going to be focusing on here at Brookings. The first is a book-length poem called Citizen by Claudia Rankin, and it won the 2014 National Book Critics Circle Award. It's a very intimate look at what it's like to live in a world where you aren't seen and where your presence isn't considered an asset. And the second book is entitled Toxic Inequality. It's by Thomas Shapiro at Brandeis. He's a very well-known scholar, been working on wealth and assets and inequality for decades, so very well-known. And in his book, he argues that wealth inequality is structural and results in persistent disparate outcomes by race. And those are two really excellent starter books and very, very interesting. I'm also really eager to dig into my colleague Richard Reeves' book, which has just been published. And I think having seen him with David Brooks a couple nights ago, I think that's a really interesting perspective on inequality as well. And now back to Bill Finan's discussion with Richard Reeves about Dream Hoarders. Why do you call the upper middle class dream hoarders? The children of the upper middle class do very well, and they're more likely to remain upper middle class than in other countries. And that's really for kind of two main reasons, like one good, one bad. Uh, the good reason is that they're raised well. Their parents work very hard to get them a good education. They're raised in stable families. They're, they're kind of fortunate in the kind of birth lottery. They, they chose their parents well. And, you know, they end up well-educated. They're skilled in all kinds of areas. They're a very accomplished and skilled people. So by the time they hit the labor market, it's not surprising that they go on to do well. And those are mostly things that we want more people to do. You know, I don't think that anybody, upper middle class or otherwise, should feel bad about being a parent that's invested in their children. But the second reason is what I call opportunity hoarding. And that's where the upper middle class are using their power, their economic power, their political power, to effectively exclude the bottom 80% or children from the bottom 80% from quite scarce and valuable resources. And that's where we're beginning not to just compete well in the market, but actually to rig the market. That's where the upper middle class is engaging in anti-competitive behavior. That looks more like a cartel than a fair competition mm -hmm. to me. And the examples that I use in the book are things like zoning, which is a really unfair way to manage yeah, land use. Could you explain that a little bit? You call it exclusionary zoning. Just, sure. just in the book, you, you make it concrete. but Sure. So zoning is the way that we regulate land in every country. Uh, of course, the U.S. has a lot of land. <laughs> it used to have a lot more than it does now economically anyway. But actually, the UK, U.S. is getting quite cramped in the sense that economic activity is more concentrated in certain areas. That pushes up the price of land. But actually, land use regulations really increased in the U.S., and particularly around residential neighborhoods. Uh, and zoning is necessary, of course, to sort of separate different kinds of activities. You don't want power plants in the middle of any residential neighborhoods and so on. But exclusionary zoning is when actually the only justification for a particular zoning regulation is to maintain the sort of economic and social character of a particular neighborhood. So in particular, if you see sort of single family dwelling zoning ordinances or very strict rules about how many people you can have per acre and so on, what that's doing in effect is just sort of maintaining the class status of that area. And that's that's really against the market. You know, the, the U.S. housing market's not very very free. It would be better if it was a bit freer. And this kind of exclusionary zoning is one of the ways that, in the old days, it was a way to exclude people of colour, and particularly black Americans. Mm -hmm. Now it's really used, whether consciously or not, to exclude people of a different class. So where we see a plot of or a tract of single-level homes but no apartment buildings, that's an example of exclusionary zoning then? 
That's right. And you can see how that overlaps with other things. Just recently, a study in Seattle showed that if you take the top 13 elementary schools in Seattle, 72% of the land in the areas that are served by those schools are zoned for single family homes. Another example of opportunity hoarding, dream hoarding, you mentioned is unfairness in college admissions, the legacy admits. Yes, I think legacy preferences is a straightforward form of dream hoarding or opportunity hoarding, as I say in the book. Actually, the U.S. is unique in the world in allowing this kind of uh, preference. It was it's been wiped out everywhere else, including where you know the U.K. where I where I come from. Yeah, that was that was amazing to me that we're the only country in the world that has legacy preferences at, at the college admissions level. Yeah, certainly at a kind of as an official policy. Officially, because yeah, there may yeah. be some going on. Although right. I have to say, it would be pretty difficult to get away with it. It's only in the U.K. and you'll get the heads of Oxford and. Cambridge now will be saying, well, there is no way this should have any effect at all. I mean, you only have to consider the fact that the royal family don't get into Oxford or Cambridge Mm -hmm. uh, in the UK anymore. So actually, it's been quite startling to me how, again, how actually this is not a partisan point, because even pretty liberal Americans seem to just think, well, that's just the way it's done. And to think, if anything, is quite a good thing. And the standard arguments are increases alumni giving, which is good because they create scholarships for the poor and so on. And actually, there's no evidence for any of those arguments, Uh, no hard evidence that any of those things are true. And in any case, most of the places people are giving lots of money to are not the places that need the money. And so if you're really seriously trying to use your charitable giving to help create a better society, don't give it to your old college if you Mm -hmm. went to a top one. It seems extraordinary to me that a nation that prides itself on being a meritocracy, a competitive meritocracy, would allow something like your parents having happened to go to a college to be a fact in admission to that college because every place that's taken by a legacy is a place that could have been taken by somebody else. And so the the invisible victims of this kind of opportunity hoarding, you know, we don't know who they are, but they are nonetheless, someone gets hurt when you play that kind of card. And another example you give too is unpaid internships. Yeah, so here, I mean, actually, Charles Murray, the right of centre social scientist, is quite controversial. And so I think quite rightly that it's just affirmative action for the rich. Internships have become quite important in terms of a transition to the labour market, and particularly in certain professions. And so as an institution of the labour market, internships, which used to be almost unheard of 30 years ago, are now really quite prevalent. And what that means is that how they're allocated, who gets them and how they get them becomes quite important for opportunity. And unfortunately, because they are, a lot of them are unpaid, they're very often handed out on a kind of basis of who you know. And when that happens, what that means is it gives an additional leg up to the people who happen to be in the right social networks. And so that's clear opportunity hoarding. This is a valuable labour market opportunity that should be allocated meritocratically and openly, but actually it's sort of stitched up by the people who know the the right people. And each of them individually might not recognise that they're just adding to a pattern of behaviour that overall is sort of deeply unfair. And Mm -hmm. the best argument they tend to give is, well, everyone's doing it, (laughs) so I should do it too. But that's a very weak moral argument. If my kids come to me and say, is it okay if I cheat in a math test, dad, because everyone else is doing it, I would say, no, I don't care. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it a morally justifiable And, and, and that everyone else is within your network too. It's not that 80%. I mean, it's, you have to it's be... It's not the bottom. That's yeah, why right. it's, it's yeah. really, it really is a mechanism for kind of class perpetuation. And I think we just need to be honest enough uh, to admit it, at least to ourselves. Right. So you're calling attention to this floor that the upper middle class has put underneath itself. That's a ceiling for the 80%. And what are some ways of breaking that floor? 
Yeah, I think it was like a glass floor that we put underneath our own kids to try and stop them being downwardly mobile. And as I say, there's a difference between the good stuff we do to make that happen and the unfair stuff, the opportunity hoarding. And so I think that the really big thing we need to do is to help those in the bottom 80% to increase their human capital, better education. And, you know, that's not just through post-secondary, it's also through K-12, pre-K, home visiting, also through community colleges who are like incredibly under-resourced by comparison to four-year mm-hmm. colleges and so on. And so there's a huge amount we can do just to kind of level the field a bit. But we also really do think need to dismantle these opportunity hoarding mechanisms the the various ways in which effectively we cheat our way to the top and so i do think that means right systematic attacks at a local and state level on zoning regulations that really just allow the upper middle class to seal themselves off they're in gated communities effectively Mm -hmm. just because you can't see the gates they're invisible gates in the form of zoning but gates nonetheless legacy admissions need to become as they have everywhere else in the world a a relic of an old and unfair world and internships need to be better regulated and paid and they need to be fairly allocated and a lot of this is as much about attitudes and social norms as it is about policies and legislation although those can help in the end Really, this is about becoming more aware of our own practices and our own privileges and changing the norm. It should just become unacceptable at some moral level to engage in activity that is basically cheating. You're the author of a biography of the philosopher and economist John Stuart (laughs) Mill. I'm curious to know what you think Mill would say of the unequal system we have in America today. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to you for bringing John Stuart Mill into this conversation. Let's hope it survives the edit. <laughs> because, oh, by the way, Mill is needed more today than ever on issues of free speech as well. True, um, true. But I think that you know, Mill's liberalism, I'm using liberalism in the proper sense of the, the word, was actually kind of based on a really kind of very strong view of that actually most Americans, I think, would endorse of kind of the against inherited status. The idea that, you know, you inherit your position in society, which I kind of thought was one of the reasons why America was born in the first Mm -hmm. place. But it turns out that for various reasons, complex reasons, and very often as unintentional consequences, actually status is pretty strongly inherited in the US. And so the class system does actually mean that too much is passed on from one generation to the next. And I know that from his attitudes towards education and from inheritance and taxation, that Mill was very strongly in favour of a society that was genuinely individualist, that was genuinely one where you could carve your own path and you could rise if that was what you chose to do. And everything, a glass floor, opportunity hoarding, this kind of dream hoarding that I identify in my book, all of those things stand in the way of the kind of classless society that not only every liberal properly defined, but I think every American should support. Thank you again, Richard. The new book is Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about and buy the book on our website, brookings.edu, and also buy it wherever you shop for books. Have you ever wanted to ask an expert a question? You can by emailing me at bcp at brookings.edu. Attach an audio file, I'll get an expert to answer, and I'll play your question and the expert's answer in an upcoming episode. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. 
Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.